Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. We are excited to get into today's program. Uh, we are continuing our interview and discussion with Michael Behe, professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University and renowned author in the area of intelligent design. Uh, Michael Behe, thank you for being back with us today. How are you? Yeah, uh, I'm doing great. It's, it's always a pleasure to, to be with you folks. Absolutely. We're glad you're here, Dr. Woodward. I'm sure you feel the same. I'm so excited that uh, we could arrange this time. I think Dr. Behe has graded all of his final exams and <laughs> and entered uh, the, the, the project grades as well for his students. And so uh, we thank you for taking time from your busy academic schedule at Lehigh University, one of those quasi Ivy League. I think of the Ivy League, the greater Ivies includes right there. <laughs> Lafayette. Kind of uh, springs right off the Ivy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, but I know that you in, in the past have been uh, doing some amazing uh, research uh, there at the Lee Iacocca building. Are you still at that building? Yeah, Iacocca Hall. That's yeah, right. Uh, Lee Iacocca Hall. I uh, always think of the, uh, the the guy who rescued Chrysler Corporation and, and made it a moneymaker. Um, so uh, we, we we are uh, honoring, as it were, the, the achievement of not just a trilogy, your three major books, Darwin's Black Box, uh, The Edge of Evolution, Darwin Duvall's, but this like capstone book, I'm going to describe it as one of the most powerful books I've ever held in my hand in my 35 years of presenting the case for a designed universe, a mousetrap for Darwin. By the way, um, there, there are essays in here that have a little bit of um, a, a zing to them. I think you, you have far too much fun writing essays when you're <laughs> taking on your critics. Do I, do I detect uh, a little, uh, maybe kind of a, an impish look on your face as you're banging your computer <laughs> keyboard? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I do. I do like to have fun. You know, writers got to have his fun, and and the Darwinists present a lot of opportunities to to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to have some fun. So, wonderful targets. Well, <laughs> let's let's go ahead and have you recap. Uh, last week in our in our first program, we were talking about the uh, the amazing thesis of Darwin Devolves, the third book that came out just a couple of years ago, where you really explained that that the evidence at the biochemical level doesn't show that genes are being put together and then selected. It's genes are breaking or they're being blunted or, or damaged. And then nature can select to send off this creature into maybe a, a little alcove, a little sidebar, right? Something like that. Right. Exactly. Where, where it has its unique niche. Now, you're, you're writing uh, on this whole topic of the evidence for design in nature or irreducible complexity. I want to talk about that a little bit more. That began with Darwin's Black Box. What inspired Darwin's Black Box, basically? What, what was happening in the world of biology that you said, hey, I see something here that's a juicy, uh, kind of a, an important thing to talk about? Well, uh, I'm a biochemist, and biochemistry studies the molecular basis of life. 
And it turns out that unknown to Darwin, who didn't know about molecules, he, he and everybody in his day thought that the cell was a simple little blob of what they called protoplasm. Uh, but science, the advance of science has shown that that's, that's a naive view of the cell, that the cell is actually filled with nano machines, mach real machines that uh, like an outboard motor, the bacterial flagellum or, or little molecular trucks that carry supplies along the way. And, and that all this information is in a genetic code uh, and so on. And I, you know, I learned about that like any biochemistry student and I just kind of sloughed it off because I was told by my teachers that, you know, oh, we, we know how that all evolved. It was by Darwinian mechanism. I thought, oh, okay. And I, I would work on something else. But then I read a book by Michael Denton called Evolution, A Theory and Crisis, where he raised a lot of arguments against Darwinism that I hadn't heard about. And I got mad and got interested then and asked how, who has shown how these complicated molecular machines might have arisen by random mutation and natural selection. Turns out nobody had. I went into the science lab, uh, library and nobody had explained those things. And then I started to reflect on what I had learned in my biochemistry studies. And uh, as you read in Darwin's Black Box, the molecular machinery, much of the molecular machinery of the cell is what I termed irreducibly complex. Like most machines, uh, molecular machinery needs a number of different parts to work. And if you take one of the parts away, doesn't work. And I used as an example for, from everyday life, a mousetrap. A mousetrap is a simple machine. It's got a spring and a holding bar and a hammer and a little wooden platform. But if you take one of those pieces away, it doesn't work not like it works less well than it used to, it, it doesn't work at all. And the problem for Darwin's theory is that it has to work, natural selection has to work on something that has a function already, that's working already, and that improves a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more so that it can be selected at each step. But if you have something that's irreducibly complex, like a mousetrap or a molecular machine, you know, you can't do that because you don't have the function. You don't have the, uh, uh, the machine being able to do its job until the very end of everything's put together. And turns out like tons of the, these machines are in the cell. And so in Darwin's Black Box, I described them. Uh, one uh, that has uh, caught on is the bacterial flagellum which is an outboard motor that a lot of bacteria use to swim. And it's got a propeller and it's got a motor and it's got clamps to hold it onto the cell membrane and stuff. And uh, so I pointed out to readers that these things, you know, were really bad fits with Darwin's theory. They couldn't be put together by numerous successive slight modifications as Darwin had written. And that a much better explanation would be that they were purposely designed because a mind and intelligence can order things, can put things together for a purpose. Only minds have purposes. So if you put together the elements of a mousetrap, 
and you see them arranged to perform this function, then you can then you realize that they were purposely designed. So that's the gist of Darwin's black box. Well, let me just say that um, when I um, picked up on the importance of this book, it had already been reviewed by the New York Times, which instead of a kind of a trashing review, uh, came out, uh, I think several of us have, have said, it's about an eight on a scale of one to 10 stars. Were you, were yeah. you a little bit shocked to see what the nice things that the New York Times said about you and your first book? <laughs> well, I guess in retrospect, I'm shocked. But mm. at that point in time, I didn't know what was going on. I was, mm. I was really naive. That was the first time I'd ever written for the public. Mm. And uh, I was surprised that the New York Times was reviewing it. And it was reviewed by somebody who, who was, a, was not an evolutionary biologist. And so he didn't have this attack mentality that other evolutionary biologists did. And he, he liked it. He liked the descriptions of the machinery the, uh, and the, uh, he, he correctly uh, conveyed the general idea. He mm. did call me a, a heretic though. Uh, for for saying that uh, for suggesting intelligent design, but hey, I don't yeah. mind. <laughs> well, I think yeah, if I remember, that was James Shreve, and uh, and Mr. Yeah. Shreve uh, was was bulking at your ultimate con you know conclusion that we have overwhelming evidence. And back then, they I mean we we maybe have known of maybe I don't know fifty or a hundred machines. It seems like there are thousands of these molecular machines that have been you know delineated and deciphered in, inside cells. It's just shocking to me. But I just, I, to this day, I, I laugh when I remember James Shreve at the end says, well, obviously Michael Behe can't be right because we need something for the next century of biology to work on. Yeah. Did he say something like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, we uh, still don't have an explanation here 25 years <laughs> later, right. but Biologists still have things to work on. <laughs> so let me just uh, again do a plug. Our our guest uh, today is none other than uh, the you know people have said Plato is the key figure in philosophy, and in fact, philosophy is really all about Plato. Everything else footnotes. Everything else is uh, footnotes of philosophy. Uh, intelligent design is Michael Behe. Everything else is footnotes. Okay, so uh, <laughs> well, close your ears. You didn't hear me say that. But um, tr truly, truly, A Mousetrap for Darwin is 109 wonderfully manageable short theses. Uh, I was thinking of maybe if there's 365 of these, we could have one for every day of the year. But, <laughs> but at least there's about one, one or two a week, and then you're through the book and enjoying every, every page of it. A Mousetrap for Darwin is the response to your critics, and some of your critics also responded to the second book, Edge of Evolution. Tell us in a brief mm -hmm. ma manner, if you could, first take a, about a minute or two. Tell us about what um, the Edge of Evolution was trying to accomplish in the year 2007 when it came out. And then we'll talk about the critics. Yes. Uh, well, the Edge of Evolution addresses this problem. If you are like me and think that, you know, much of biochemistry and molecular machines required design, but not everything in biology necessarily requires design. You know, maybe the shape of my nose, you know, uh, can wander around a, a bit. Then you can ask the question, well, where's the rough dividing line? Where's the edge between what features of life required purposeful design and what might be changeable and maybe even improvable by just random processes? 
And in order to do that, that's an empirical question. You need data, you need results to be able to address that. And there hadn't been, uh, and for the study of evolution, you need lots of results. And there hadn't really been uh, uh, enough data obtained uh, prior to when I wrote the book. But in the decade or so before uh, I wrote the book, studies of malaria came out. And everybody knows malaria is this uh, nasty, devastating disease that kills many people even now every year. And there was a drug that was used to treat malaria, a wonder drug that would cure a patient within a couple days once they would take this drug. And it was called chloroquine. Uh, that's been in the news a little bit in the past few months, but that's, me, that's irrelevant. Just, let me just point out that the, the oddity mm. is that is it a hydro hydroxychloroquine is a first cousin of that or, or a yeah. variation on that is was was the yeah. drug that was cited as potentially useful for COVID. I just thought that was really amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that same drug yeah. is at the centerpiece of your book. Go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, chloroquine was this wonder drug and it, uh, but after about a decade or so, it ran out the uh, the uh, malarial parasite, a little single-celled organism, uh, developed resistance to it. And um, in the early 2000s, scientists were able to track down the exact mutations that uh, gave it resistance, that gave it resistance to the chloroquine. And it turns out um, that there were just two crummy little amino acid residue changes in one pre-existing protein in that single-celled organism that conferred upon it resistance to malaria. Now, this is important. The, uh, one of the main points of the book is that with uh, chloroquine, uh, you need uh, chloroquine, resistance to chloroquine occurs about once in every billion patients. Every billion people that get malaria, new uh, de novo resistance appears. But with other anti-chloroquine drugs, there's one called atovaquone, it turns out that new resistance appears once in every three count them, three patients. So there is a factor of 300 million or so between the number required to develop resistance to chloroquine versus atovaquone. And I show in the book that for atovaquone resistance, you need just one particular amino acid change. But with chloroquine, you need two. And it's, it's kind of like playing the lottery okay, mutations are random, and the genome of a, um, of a malarial parasite has about 100 million or so units, nucleotides. So you gotta get one of them right. And then you have to get the other one right. So you need 100 million times 100 million. For a tovoquone, you just have to get one of them right. So that's a factor of 100 million less than for chloroquine. So I just pointed out the obvious that if you need more than one change, and we're talking molecular changes here, if you need more than one for a helpful effect, 
then Darwin and Darwin's mechanism quickly runs out of steam. So uh, I proposed, I used that and proposed an edge, uh, the edge of evolution where beyond a certain degree of a complexity and it, and it wasn't very much, then you would not expect Darwin's mechanism to be able to cope with that. And you would need purposeful arrangement of parts. Wow. Well, that uh, and key step forward in the second stage of your trilogy in the edge of evolution to me was a barn burner. I mean, it was a fabulous book. When I read it, I was sitting in a kind of a, a, a big building, a big uh, Khrushchev style block of apartments in the city of Kharkov in, in the Ukraine. And, huh. and I can just remember thinking, you know, okay, the people of Ukraine and the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union were, were just bombarded, you know, and trained and propagandized with Darwinism. And we're just like them. You know, we're just uh, without maybe the atheists. Uh, so what? You know, therefore atheism, that that is was mandated in the in the former Soviet Union or Ukraine of today. And I was just reading this book and how just think how this one book could almost knock down the walls of 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 thought that had been erected so carefully through the previous hundred years. But the the critics were not silent, at least not all of them. Some of them tried to poke at uh, your thesis. Can you remember either on the Darwin's black box or the edge of evolution, any of your replies to critics uh, that we would find in this amazing book, uh, Mousetrap for Darwin, any, any of those replies that you found particularly kind of fun and interesting? Well, uh, let's see, for, uh, for the edge of evolution, for, for Darwin's black box, that was in 96. And so it was, a little bit before blogging and easily accessible internet replies were possible, at least, at least for me. So I didn't have, I didn't get the chance to reply too much to that. Um, one, uh, one reply I did write, and it's an important one, was to an objection that a man named Ken Miller, Kenneth Miller, who's a professor of biology at Brown University, he, uh, he wrote uh, a particular objection. He said, well, uh, you know, he actually changed my definition of irreducible complexity. <laughs> he said, no, that's not what, I said that irreducible complexity means that if you take a piece away from a machine, you know, and the machine doesn't work anymore. And he says, no, that's not what you really mean. What you really mean is that if you take a piece away, you can't use that piece for any other purpose. He says that if you can use it for another purpose, then it's not irreducibly complex. And I said, what? <laughs> uh, and uh, he went on to say that, well, if I take the wooden plank or wooden base off of a mousetrap, I can use it as a paperweight. Uh, well, okay, but uh, you can use anything as a paperweight. So therefore nothing is irreducibly complex. So. Uh, but that was simply trying to explain things away. And I wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal because there was a science reporter named Sharon Begley who had written a story on intelligent design and used uh, Miller's objection in the story. And I wrote back that, uh, I said, this, is not, this isn't a good faith uh, effort. You know, my definition says you can't... Uh, make the system, uh, the system will fail. 
and uh, he switched it around. And they actually did print that. Uh, and I think it is in, it's in the, uh, the book, uh, A Mousetrap for Darwin. And uh, so that, that was a key thing because I found in this business that people want to grasp onto any straw to avoid the argument. And so if they say that, well, I can use a piece of a mousetrap as a paperweight, therefore your argument about irreducible complexity you know, it isn't valid, they'll do so and they'll repeat each other. Uh, and so one of the reasons I wrote uh, Mousetrap for Darwin was because I wanted to show people that I had responded to all these critics because too many of the criticisms that I have already rebutted uh, are still used 20 years later, even though they've been put to rest for a, a long time. So I'm hoping that this book will be able to uh, allow supporters of intelligent design to read for themselves that there are no good objections to ID, and that they have been addressed, and that they themselves maybe can learn some of these things and respond if they come across uh, people repeating these old objections. We very much appreciate you being here. And I just had one final question. Uh, we have yeah. about two minutes left, but if you could comment, this is one of my favorite quotes uh, from you. It says, the theory of undirected evolution is already dead, but the work of science continues. Um, just before we wrap it up here, do you think you could kind of expand a little bit on sort of the idea that people have that if you don't believe in Darwinism, that's sort of a, a paradox because it means you don't believe in science. Um, can you sort of speak to that a little bit? Sure. Uh, yeah, the, the real work of science, uh, real work of biology is to determine how life works. That is, uh, what, what's going on? How does, say, the coronavirus work? Or how does it, uh, how do the uh, immune defenses work? And it's been in those areas that science has uh, advanced tremendously in recent decades, but there's still lots and lots and lots of stuff to, to go. And uh, the idea that evolution, uh, the study of evolution has contributed much of anything to this is, is simply wrong. I mean, it does show how little things change in life, and that can be important, such as in sickle cell disease or malaria uh, resistance to chloroquine, but it has been fruitless at understanding how the machinery of life arose. Uh, here's one analogy. Suppose you landed on an alien planet and there were no aliens there anymore, but they left behind all sorts of strange and wonderful technology and you couldn't quite figure it out, but you were working on this piece and on that piece and you would make progress just by trying to figure out the principles by which all of this stuff worked. It would not uh, help you at all to try to uh, come up with a story about how it might have arisen without alien intelligence to direct it. So uh, we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of uh, work ahead of us, the scientific community, simply at understanding the amazing, incredible technology of life, and by doing so, hopefully helping medical and agricultural and, and other 
uh, other disciplines uh, to serve people better. But um, Darwin's theory is dead. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, for those of you listening, make sure you'll find a lot of this in A Mouse Trap for Darwin, uh, Michael Behe's newest book. Make sure you order that and go check out our episode from last week. Uh, and we'll see you back here in the universe next door. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door.